Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Vasey View, where I explore tech trends and exciting companies in Europe and the UK. And as you know, my special interest is where those tech trends or companies are affecting the public policy climate. And I'm delighted to be joined by Jim Mellon, the head of the Burnbrae Group, who is an entrepreneur, investor, philanthropist, a startup investor, and a person who knows about what trends are coming and what's going to change the world. I love Jim. He's a fascinating man. The reason I really wanted to interview Jim right now is because I got sent a copy of Moo's Law, which is Jim's latest book, which came out at the end of last year. The foreword is dated November 2020. And the point about uh, Moo's Law is it says underneath the title, An Investor's Guide to the New Agrarian Revolution. And I've been wanting to do a podcast on agri-tech for quite a while. And agri-tech sounds unbelievably boring, but actually I think it's absolutely fascinating because it is potentially going to completely change the world. You know, I was thinking before the podcast, you know, when you look at those films like Blade Runner or Logan's Run and these pictures of dystopian cities, there's potentially another vision if Jim ever becomes a film director of uh, wooded forests, medieval landscapes, and far fewer sheep and cows dotting the landscape because of the agrarian revolution, the agritech revolution that Jim is investing in and is an expert in. And it's also linked, which I hope we'll touch on as well during the podcast, to the whole longevity agenda, which is obviously fascinating. And we're not, I think, talking here about cryogenic freezing. We're talking about the kind of changes one can make that will actually prolong people's lives. So Jim's version of Logan's Run will have a lot of 300-year-old people who look fit as a fiddle wandering through medieval forests. So Jim, welcome. Thanks, Ed. Now let's get stuck in. I want to talk about agritech, agri-luddites, and the clean food movement. You list in your book a whole host of reasons why we need effectively an agrarian revolution. Let's start with, first of all, I'll list each one, or you can just riff and go through them all yourself because you know them back to front. We obviously start, you know, we're recording this obviously in the middle of a pandemic, which is why we're not face-to-face. Everyone knows that the reason for the coronavirus is to do with animal to human transmission. So number one priority in terms of why we need to change, as it were, our industrial relationship with food is human health. Absolutely true. So before the Second World War, intensive farming existed just in a small way. And by intensive farming, I mean when animals are packed together in an industrial fashion and are fed antibiotics and hormones, hormones to promote growth, antibiotics to stop them from getting uh, diseases. Today, 80% of world antibiotic consumption goes into farmed animals. That creates a very big risk. And you know Jim O'Neill, obviously, he's the head of the British government antimicrobial resistance effort. This is a, a much more serious risk than what we've experienced, which is bad enough in the coronavirus. Because if we become antibiotic resistance, which resistant, which we are, and pharmaceutical companies don't develop new antibiotics because they're not, because there's no money in it. If there was an animal to human transmission of a bacterial disease as opposed to a viral disease, uh, we could be facing something akin, and I'm not exaggerating here, to the Black Death, which would be on a scale, multiple scale of what we're experiencing at the moment. 
This overuse of antibiotics is a clear and present danger to human health, and it has to be stopped, which is one of the best reasons why intensive farming needs to at least decline in importance. Can I just pause you on that one point, just to clarify one point, because I, I, I obviously, I'm aware of the antibiotic crisis, if you like. I assume that was because we as humans were taking too many antibiotics, but it's actually because of, partly because of the food we're eating as well. It's, it's largely because of the food, actually, but uh, there is obviously overuse of antibiotics, particularly in countries in Asia, where they hand them out like sweeties, basically, and you can buy them without prescription. Yeah. But it's mostly due to the combination of animal farming and lack of development of new antibiotics. I did not know that. So carry on. So you're about to say there are a whole host of other reasons, save me listing them all. Yeah. I mean, unless you're a cattle farmer, and even even then, there might be opportunities for you, unless you're a sheep farmer, unless you're a pig farmer. There are so many positive reasons for being involved in this new revolution. Let's start with the environment. Intensive agriculture contributes 20% to global emissions. That's the largest single factor eclipsing transport and industry in man-made contribution to uh, global warming. And it's getting worse because there are more and more intensive farms because there's more and more demand for animal protein from countries like China and India. And the climate change aspect is what? I mean, I, I don't want to be facetious about a very important subject. Cow farts is something that people talk about. Is that what it is? It's methane from cows or is there other, other factors as well in terms of the impact on the climate? Well, it's not just cows. It's, um, you know, every form of animal husbandry, basically. But it's 20%. It's one fifth of all global emissions. And uh, so in, at a stroke, if animal husbandry was, you know, reduced to a hobbyist activity as opposed to the way that the principal way in which animal protein is consumed, then you'd have a very significant reduction in, in emissions globally. And, and by the way, this is going to happen. I'll explain that in a second, Edward, that, that this is underway now. Yeah. Second thing is that water misuse or water misallocation is exacerbated by animal husbandry. So it takes 15,000 litres of water, for instance, to produce one kilogram of, of beef. Thirdly, 70% of all crops grown around the world go into feeding animals. Uh, it's not a very profitable activity for farmers. Growing crops for human consumption is much more profitable. And it also contributes massively to deforestation. So the Amazon, as you know, is being chopped down at a rapid pace because it's being turned over to soybeans. Those soybeans don't go into Heinz baked beans. They go into feeding animals, which are incredibly inefficient converters of plant protein into meat. So a cow, for instance, requires 25 times the amount of plants going into it to produce one unit of output of, of beef. And a chicken, which is the most efficient, is nine to one. So, you know, that, there's a whole load of zeitgeist reasons. And if you get onto animal cruelty and in intensive farming, you know, then you've got me because the reason I don't eat meat and haven't for years and years is because I do not approve of the way in which animals are treated. But that's a minority view. Uh, the majority of people will eat the products that are going to come out of laboratories and come out of plant-based food factories because the taste, the texture and the cost uh, will be equivalent or better than that of conventional meat. And that's going to be the driving force. So you know, the reason I call the book Moore's Law is because Moore's Law, which many of your listeners will be familiar with, which is a semiconductor law uh, introduced by Gordon Moore 40, nearly 50 years ago, posited that every 18 months, the price of uh, semiconductors would come down by 50% and the efficiency would double. And that's more or less been the case up till now. The Moore's Law trajectory is even faster. 2013 was the first 
artificial cell ag burger, Mark Post, Professor Mark Post of Maastricht University, unveiled it on the BBC, and that cost about 300,000 euros. Today, those burgers are less than $10, and the trajectory is down, 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 and it will keep on going down until we reach what um, you, Ed, as a noted environmental expert, will know what grid parity is. Uh, I call it griddle parity because when the price gets down to at or below conventional meat, then the, the market changes. So Rethink X, UK-based consultancy, very highly regarded, thinks that 50%, 50% of the global meat market, which is a huge market, the size of the economy of Spain, will be plant-based coming out of laboratories by 2030, nine years away. Hence the great opportunity for investors, for governments, for everyone to take account of it. And in our own country, we import half of our food. Uh, the UK could be completely self-sufficient and possibly a net exporter of food if it embraced this technology. So I'm slightly blown away because you've set out an incredible vision, an exciting vision, and I just want to slightly unpack it. So I take the points about our dependence on meat, if you like, and the enormous impact on the planet in terms of climate change, water use, land use, animal cruelty itself, our impact on our health, and in fact, the fact that it's an extremely inefficient way of getting our protein. But you started talking, careered into talking about cell-based meat and so on, and the new law that is going to see the cost of this technology fall dramatically year on year. So let's just pause there and go through some of this new technology. You've got plant-based, you've got cell-based, you've got air and fermentation-based protein. Talk us through the kind of tech that's effectively going to come up with meat substitutes, if you like. Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, I should say that it's not just the meat market that's being disrupted. It's the seafood market and it's the materials market. So things like leather, threads, cotton are in the process of being disrupted. But let's look at the trajectory. So everyone is familiar with plant-based foods, Beyond Meat, Impossible Burger, in the UK, corn, meatless farms, et cetera. Those companies have evolved their product so that it's not like the wet cardboard that vegetarians used to eat 20 years ago. And it's now, if you eat a Beyond Meat burger, which we do in this household, you can't tell the difference between that and a, you know, a regular burger, apart from the fact it's more expensive at the moment. But that's the first wave. And those companies are branding companies, basically, because you and I, Ed, could set up a plant-based food company tomorrow, and we could call it Ed and Jim's Natural Whatever, but we wouldn't have any IP around it. There'd be no really patent protection afforded to us because you're just converting plants into and other items into, into some replica of, uh, of meat or seafood. But just, just pause there for a second. The, the plant-based stuff, because I remember going to New York and buying a plant-based burger in a, in a burger joint with my family, and it was a kind of big moment like three years ago, like getting your first iPhone. The cost of making this meat-like plant burger is now kind of pretty negligible compared to, you know, we could all switch to plant-based burgers tomorrow and it's affordable and it's, kind of, it's now mainstream is what I'm trying to get to. It is. So Beyond Meat is a $10 billion company listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and it just did a deal with Pepsi-Cola this week, actually, to commercialize a new line of plant-based uh, meats. And then Impossible Burger is the number two in the field. And there's a host of other ones. Live Kindly here in Europe before we go public. We've also got the milk substitutes like Oatly, which will go public. That's you know gone from nothing to a 5 billion euro company 
in a very short space of time. So there's a huge, you know, consumer move towards plant-based uh, foods. Before we go on to sell, because I just want to pause briefly on plant, I just want to, uh, to, to go on a slight tangent, tiny tangent, but just deal with this issue. I want to ask the avocado question. <laughs> so in terms of what is plant-based, in terms of what goes into a plant-based burger or indeed oat milk, and indeed, or think about almond milk. I mean, there is a is there not an argument that some of these substitutes, the millennials avocado on toast or the almond milk, are just as stressful on the planet in terms of particularly water as what they're replacing? Is that a valid point or not? It is. I, I wouldn't say they're just as stressful on the environment, but they are. I mean, almonds consume enormous amounts exactly. of water. They're principally grown in California, which is water short, and you know, the fact of the matter is that milk substitutes, as they currently exist, oats, uh, rice, soya, almond, they're probably better for you, but then nothing compared to the ones that are going to be coming along soon, which are the fermented products that you mentioned earlier on. Companies like NoQuo or Perfect Day out of the United States have raised huge amounts of money, and they're, they're basically perfecting uh, the key components of milk in labs, which are whey and casein, and they're your, your milk will no longer come from a dairy farm. But just to show you how the economics change as a result of the disruption of the market, half a percent of the US market for milk was alternatives 10 years ago. Today, it's over 20%. And the two biggest milk producers, conventional milk producers in the US, have gone bust as a result of that. So the same thing is going to happen to meat. The economics of producing conventional meat will, will there'll be a tipping point at which you know, the whole thing will just collapse, basically. That is fascinating. So I want, I want to go back to that in a minute, but let's let's go through the technologies. We're, we're going to come on to air and fermentation, but let's deal with cell-based cell meat. So this is the very exciting development. Effectively, you grow your own meat in a lab. Yes. So let me just put it in a, in a simple example. Take a cow <laughs> and go and take a 2.5 milliliter uh, sample from that cow. It doesn't feel anything. Uh, and it goes back to its field or to its feedlot or whatever. Take that sample, extract the stem cells. It's all biotech techniques here. Yeah. And bathe those stem cells in nutrients, which would be a, are equivalent to what a cow would eat if it was you know, being fed in a feedlot or grazing outside. And uh, in terms of the, the chemicals that are, the proteins that, that it's absorbing, introduce growth factors, which will then help to differentiate the stem cells into what you actually want to produce, which would typically be muscle, fat, and sometimes connective tissue. Put them all into separate, uh, what are called bioreactors, which are great big stainless steel, you know, cylinders, basically, like you might see in a brewery, actually, and agglomerate those into the finished product. Now, that one sample from one cow will produce the equivalent of seven or eight cows somewhere between 30 and 40 days, 3,000 kilos of beef, whereas a cow in the field is 28 months, or in a feedlot, 28 months to 30 months before it can be slaughtered. So it's a much more efficient process. At scale, the inputs are about two to one. And I mentioned earlier that a cow is a 25 to one proposition. So there's every chance that the price of this stuff at scale by the way, these companies are only producing at pilot scale. They're not producing huge amounts, but they're all producing the price of this meat, hormone-free, animal cruelty-free, no environmental damage, using a tiny fraction of the land and water that is currently used by conventional agriculture, uh, will be below 
the price of conventional meat. And it will enable the consumption of protein for Chinese, Indians, and so forth, you know, who want those proteins, and quite rightly, why should we be the only ones who get the animal proteins in the next 10 to 20 years? So we're in a very, very big uh, revolution at the moment. And your two, your two to one is, is two input to get one bit of protein, as it were. As That's correct. 25 bits of input to get one piece of protein from a cow, or nine to get one from a chicken. Yeah, and, and no waste, of course. You know, you don't have the feathers and the beak and the eyes and the... So it's 12 times more efficient than feeding a cow. Amazing. And, you know, we're lucky because just as we need to obviate the pandemic risk, we need to improve human health. The technology which comes out of the biotech industry, which is my day job, is now available to be used in food production. And, and you know, there are about 60 companies around the world. We need more British companies. There are very few of those. And the... The centers of excellence, if you want to put it that way, are in the Netherlands, which is a very big food exporter, second biggest food exporter in the world, the US principally, and then Israel and Singapore. You know, why, why isn't the more attention paid to this in the UK, which is actually a leader in plant-based substitutes, but uh, as far as I can see, it doesn't really offer very much in the way of cell ag yet. So I want to come on to the role of, of, of government at the, at the end of the podcast, but briefly on cell-based meat. So you you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that the, the burger produced in 2013, $300,000. Cell-based burger now would cost... 10. Wow. Yeah, which is still far too expensive. And this stuff looks like, you know, if I walked into the lab and saw it being grown, as it were, I would see what would look like a piece of beef muscle. Okay, so seafood mm -hmm. looks just like the fish that you would have on your plate without the scales and without the head and the tail and without the bone, all right? So it looks just like a fish fillet. Yeah. And that's here now, and that will be on the US market by the end of this year. There's a company called Blue Nalu, just raised $60 million last week, that will have that on the market. Meat is a different proposition because replicating a steak, some companies are working on it, but it's very difficult because of all the way, you know, the presentation of the steak and all that sort of stuff. However, 60% of all meat that's eaten is ground. So it's minced sausages, hamburgers, etc. And that is, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's much easier to produce. So we think the successful companies will be those that go after the, the ground beef market, where the presentation, it looks just like a hamburger patty, basically. That's what it looks like. And that's what it is. But making it into a steak is very difficult. And that will be a long time coming, I think. But there may be a kind of cultural shift anyway. People might just say, look, I don't care. This is much better for me. I don't need it to look like a steak. Don't waste your money and resources. Make it look like a steak. Just give it to me as it is. Yeah, they might do. There's a company in Israel doing exactly that, trying to make a steak. There are lots of people who become vegetarians because they, they don't like, like what steak looks like. The air and fermentation. Let's take me through that. Okay, now this is a very interesting technology. Funny enough, the leader in the world, well, there's a US company called Air Protein. There's a company in uh, Finland, which has very little solar radiation and none in the winter, has worked out a way in which you take um, a, a special, effectively a bacterial uh, strain called a hygienotroph, and you, it's, it's prevalent in Switzerland and volcanic rock, not Switzerland, in Finland, and you introduce that into an electrolysis process where you break down hydrogen and oxygen and you capture carbon from the air, and as well as you capture the water that you electrolyze, basically. Anyway, this produces a goop, 
which is equivalent to soybean. It's a protein, it's a pure protein. And we think will be at exactly the same price as production of soybean, but without you know, having to plant the soybeans um, in the very near future. But it, it is well suited to countries which are food insecure and which have high solar radiation. So some countries in Africa, for instance, some in the Far East, and particularly in the Middle East, where they have you know, year-round sunshine and plenty of space, this would be very attractive to them. And what you do with that protein is you don't eat it. You basically, well, you do eat it, but you don't eat it like this. You put it into plant-based burgers or you introduce it into, you know, it's a food mixer, basically. Yeah, so it's like the protein powder that I had this morning with my smoothie. Yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, that company called, there's one in the UK called Fuel, and then there's another one in America, I can't remember what it's called, yeah. but, you know, they'd be Silicon Valley people who can't be bothered to go and eat. <laughs> yes, yes. Stuff on this stuff all day long. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Vertical farming. I know this, this now sounds like a menu. Uh, where does this fit into your food revolution? Because I'm quite into the idea of, I love this idea of kind of urban farms, stacks of plants being grown, you know, in, in an apartment block in a very efficient way, reusing the water. Is it going anywhere? Yeah, it is. I mean, there's lots and lots of money going into it. In the US, I think one of the companies listed was multi-billion dollars. In Germany, they're actually putting uh, mini vertical farms into supermarkets. So you actually pick your own, you know, whatever you want. And in Israel, there's, because of the water shortage there and the very advanced technology in agriculture, uh, there's been lots of companies developed there. This is not an area that we are investing in. It's highly capital intensive. There's plenty of competition. And the products that you can produce there have a limited market. So salads, tomatoes, you know, watercress, that sort of thing. You can't effectively grow wheat or uh, the major staple uh, rice or the major staple crops using vertical farming yet. And so it's a very interesting area. And I mentioned a bit about it in the book, but it's not an area that we're investing in. But cell base must be capital intensive as well. It's not just a Yes, but the, the cell-based companies, and actually I get back to the point, you know, the plant-based companies typically don't have a very strong intellectual property to defend. The cell-based are all IP-based. And we work out that, you know, obviously we don't know exactly, but we think that 100 million US dollars will provide a plant, a cell-based plant, that will feed 100,000 people approximately for about 20 years. And the return on investment in those initial plants will be about 30% per year. So the, the economics of the cell-based stuff, we think, are much better. And I, I do emphasize that it's not just meat. The seafood market is huge in the world. It's two to $300 billion. Seafood, if anything, cries out for disruption more than meat because the seas are being despoiled by overfishing. Absolutely. Often the fish that they catch are fed to the farmed fish, which are typically live in very unhygienic and antibiotic full uh, environments and with this mercury and microplastics in almost every fish that you eat so something needs to be done about fishing and then there's materials so uh, already there's a leather company that produces leather for the big fashion houses in a lab uh, it's identical to the best cow's leather and you can produce it in any size you want so at the moment you have a calf typically which produces a hide and that's the limit of the size of the leather uh, and if the calf gets damaged by barbed wire or accidents or whatever, then the leather is ruined. This is can be made in any size at all. And it, it doesn't have any hair when it comes out of the lab. So it doesn't have to go through the full tanning process. Tanning being a very bad uh, thing for the environment. 
And then there's cotton, a company that we know well is uh, expectedly producing cotton at one sixth, one sixth the price of producing cotton in the fields. So this is a materials revolution as well as a food revolution. And that's what makes, makes it really exciting. It's brilliant. I want to come on to government uh, to kind of end the podcast, but I just want to go off on a tangent on just two issues that I just thought about while we were talking. Uh, I just want to just check them off. One is insects. You, you know, one open, you can't really open a newspaper without somebody saying, you know, we're all going to be eating locusts in the future. Is there anything in, in that in terms of your, your approach to this issue kind of from a climate change cruelty perspective means that insect protein is is a market or is it it's just kind of you let them go on with it and you know it can it can succeed or not it's, it's a great question my answer to that ed is that there is a cultural predilection to eat insects in the far east yeah and there's a big market so you go to you know indonesia you can get in locusts on a stick and eat them with you know covered in toffee or whatever yeah in the west particularly in the northern hemisphere it doesn't make sense. The reason that they're prevalent in the Far East is because the insects thrive in a warm, moist environment. And you cannot replicate that warm, moist environment without huge energy costs to produce insects in the uh, the Northern Hemisphere, which is why the insect companies, the companies that produce you know, crickets or locusts or whatever, for human consumption have not gone anywhere. And you know, in the book, I talk about a couple of those companies. It's a geographical and cultural thing. I don't think we'll be eating insects anytime soon in our part of the world. And there's no need to, because there'll be plenty of alternatives for us to eat. Um, I don't have a particular view on animal cruelty as it relates to locusts and, and to crickets, uh, but you know, I'm sure vegetarians wouldn't eat them just because they don't, they don't want this, the killing of animals. And where does your vision on Agritech leave GM crops? None of the cell ag companies, oh, that's not true, but almost none of them, uh, use GM. So it's not genetically modified. These are the living cells out of living animals. But my own view is that, you know, the European Union imposed effectively a ban on GM agriculture in the European Union. It did not impose a ban on the importation of crops that were imported from countries which use GM, like America. So you, there's plenty of GM stuff on sale in the European Union and in the UK. I think the UK can diverge from European Union policy. Uh, policy by selectively and carefully using GM to improve crop technology. And there is a very good company based in Norwich called Tropic Biosciences, which is really, really good business, which is engaged in trying to improve the resilience of key crops that are threatened by uh, diseases. So do you see GM playing a kind of central role in your vision of the agri-revolution in the next 10, 20, 30 years? Or do you see it being left behind as these new technologies come on stream? Uh, well, GM is, is basically related to crops. We're not investing in crops, or at least not at the moment. We do have an investment in Tropic, which I, by the way, I think is an actually brilliant company. And they're doing a lot of good for the world because I don't know if you know this, but 99.9% .9 of bananas in the world come from one species. It's called Cavendish. Even though there are thousands of types of bananas, that's the only one that's universally sold. And it's under severe threat from a, a rampant disease. And they're trying to yes. work out how to make that disease free. And then they're also doing the same for rice. And so, that, you know, for developing countries, this is really important technology. Uh, and it's used as GM and, uh, you know, and, and good on them, frankly speaking. But this is not what I'm really interested in. I mean, I'm interested in it. No, no, I, that, that's kind of what I was getting at. Changing the production of protein. Right. Government. King for a day. 
this has been a really inspiring conversation and it gets to my soul in the sense you just want to be in government and saying, right, we're going to make this just like climate change to a certain extent. I always say about climate change, it's a win-win because not only is it obviously essential to do something to combat climate change, but any country that leans into this will create the jobs of the future, the technology of the future, potentially export those jobs and, and technology around the world. Give us your manifesto if you were in Downing Street to kind of turbocharge agritech. Is it tax credits? Is it investment in research? Is it What is it? Well, I, I, first of all, I, I, I wouldn't do anything myself. I'd appoint you as the, if I was king for the day <laughs> to do it. Um, but the um, look, this industry is high value added. It's high jobs, high quality jobs. It will displace at least some of the farming land that's used at the moment to make way for housing, for instance, or rewilding or whatever. And it could render the UK to be food self-sufficient. Now, there are not many people around. My dad is one of them who remembers the privations of the Second World War when the Germans sank the convoys across the Atlantic. Uh, and it was a time, I mean, I think that the British were very worried that they would be starved into submission. And that's food insecurity. And we're even less capable of producing our own food today than we were in, in the 1940s. So why not encourage this industry? I mean, the government gave Sir John Bell uh, quite a bit of money to try and promote biotech industries around aging and improving the resilience of, um, of the population. But why not give money to farmers, uh, for instance, or companies that could help farmers to turn at least some of their farms into the two good things that are going to emerge from this. Maybe they can have the bioreactors situated on their farms, and also they can turn their attention from growing crops that go into animals, which don't make any money, to growing high-value-added crops for human beings, which make much more money. So there is a tremendous opportunity for the British government, and indeed any government, and particularly those that have high import dependency for food. So Ed, go get them, basically, because someone needs to do it. And I love the way you put it as well, because obviously one's instinct as a politician is to think, how on earth do you um, win over the farming lobby? But you sort of set out a vision where you can actually work with farmers to, as partners in this revolution, potentially. I mean, the farmers I know probably would uh, tell us where to get off, but I suspect the younger generation might be more amenable to seeing what the future looks like. Yes, I hope so. I mean, actually, farmers could make much more money getting involved in this revolution than they currently do, because they're all moaning about the fact they don't make any money and the only form of real income they have is subsidy. I don't think this will require subsidy. It will require some you know, directed money into universities and in government, you mentioned tax credits and all this sort of stuff, definitely. Uh, this could be a brand new industry for the UK and food, I think, is our biggest export industry, actually. Food and drink is the biggest export industry in the UK. I think it even exceeds cars, if I'm right in saying that. And so why not? Yeah, I think it's cheddar and pork pies and and, and whiskey and whiskey, except, except for the Trump tariffs, which have prevented us selling whiskey to the Americans. But tell us a bit about your work on longevity. It's related to this revolution or it's separate? We'll be eating healthier, you know. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, at the moment you eat, I'm sure you don't, but a lot of people do eat processed meat. In Glasgow, there's a 30 year expectancy life uh, life expectancy gap between the in 10 kilometers between the rich parts and the poor parts and it's not because they're fighting or they're you know smoking too much or drinking too much it's because of the 
processed meat consumption on a daily basis involving nitrites and all sorts of other, other things, and it leads to colon cancer. You won't get that with this type of food. So obviously it has a positive longevity effect. The two are linked because we are in the world of three great metathenes. One is yours, which is climate change, massively significant, linked very closely to the food supply and the emissions from animals. And then there's the longevity uh, aspect as well, because we are going to live in a world, I mean, I know the pandemic is reducing life expectancy temporarily, but we're going to live in a world of people who will regularly, uh, and the majority of us will live to over 100 years old. How are we going to deal with that? And uh, so it's all linked into great meta themes. And, you know, Joel and ourselves were just kind of joshing at the beginning about this stupid craze for stocks that don't have any fundamentals attached to them. If you want to be a really successful investor in the future, then invest in the things that will keep you alive longer and healthier and invest in the foods that will partly enable that, but also revolutionize the whole of this massive, massive industry in a positive way. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. It's been, a, I often say at the end of my podcast, they've been inspiring, but uh, I think this one feels different in the sense that most of the people I talk to, I know quite a lot about what they're doing and the subject is fairly routine. I think this is really eye-opening stuff. It does feel a bit like sort of talking about climate change 10 years ago before people kind of really catch on, although hopefully under Moore's law, this revolution will, or at least engagement in this debate will accelerate far quicker than the engagement in climate change. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Ed. And uh, well, let's all join forces to make it happen. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to this episode of Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.